Massimo, it's good to see you again. <laughs> How are you? I'm doing great. Uh, and let's welcome the audience to the second uh, episode of Sophia. And oh, I've heard um, name before. Yeah, you know, I, they asked me for a name, and I figured you would, wouldn't mind something Greek. And so, <laughs> <laughs> sure. And my my Greek's better than my Latin, so. Uh, oh, there you go. Um, so why don't we uh, introduce ourselves, and then we can get started on our topic for today. Massimo, would you like to go first? Yes, so I'm Massimo Pilucci. I'm the KD Irani Professor of Philosophy at the City College of New York. And I'm Daniel Kaufman. I'm a Professor of Philosophy at Missouri State University. Um, we are trying out a new recording software, which is why I'm not in my usual place. I feel a little exposed, um, rather than being surrounded by all my books, but... Uh, uh, it'll work out just fine. So yeah, I still, I still have Descartes and, and Aristotle on my back, so it's like you're know, watching my back. So yeah, I feel, I feel good. I love those. Uh, I love those pictures. Um, okay, so today we were we agreed that we were going to talk about um, what's called the strong artificial intelligence thesis, right? And um, and all the implications of of it, and some of the main criticisms of it, and such. And as is always probably wise, maybe we should start with uh, some definitions of concepts. Um, so how do you understand what's called the strong artificial intelligence thesis? Well, uh, so the term comes from the heyday of that program, that particular research program, where, where um, uh, you know, computer scientists and some philosophers of mind, uh, this was decades ago at this point, uh, thought that you know true artificial intelligence was going to be around around the corner, and by true artificial intelligence, uh, that's that, that's where the, the trouble begins because it's not exactly clear what they meant. Um, uh, you know, uh, what they were talking about intelligent and or conscious computers, and that to me has always been one of the uh, fundamental issues with with the strong AI program because intelligence is not the same thing as consciousness. The two are obviously related. Uh, you know, I'm presumably an intelligent person, you know, sort of more or less, uh, and I'm certainly conscious. Uh, but uh, you can have a very intelligent machine, like my, my smartphone is really smart. I mean, it's very intelligent by, by the standards of, uh, you know, doing computations very fast, accessing information very fast, accessing a lot of information and that sort of stuff. Uh, but it's presumably not conscious, even though Siri sometimes does give me weird answers when I talk to her, but nonetheless. So, um, uh, so I understand the strong AI thesis as uh, it is possible and in fact it will be soon feasible to have a computer that is either as intelligent as a human being or more or uh, uh, as, as conscious as a human being. And as I said, that's where the problem starts from the beginning because I actually would agree that we can have smart computers. I'm not sure that we can have conscious computers. Okay, so let's um, let's work with this a little bit. Um, so not being a computer scientist and not coming at it from that angle, but coming at it from the philosophy of mind, right. when I think of the, the strong AI thesis, what I always think of is, and I mean I teach this, I mean I teach this material uh, at, at the university, um, I think of the research program in the philosophy of mind and in cognitive science in which the idea was that computers and 
the ways that computers work was going to explain to us what the human mind is and how the human mind works. Yes, so that's right. So that's a, that's another re yet another reasonable way of understanding the strong AI program, which is as a model, as a replication, essentially, of the human mind, which would be used at least in part in order to understand how a human mind works. The idea being that if you're capable of essentially reverse engineering something or, or simulating something very closely to the original, then you have a better understanding of the original. But I think that that thesis got lost very quickly, meaning meaning that the path to that to that outcome, because it, it has become immediately clear, uh, even to uh, optimistic supporters of the strong AI approach, that because of issues with materials, because of issues with, you know, technical issues with, with you know, having to, to uh, provide the computer in question with, you know, access to the external world, the ways to navigate the external world. We're not talking about a computer anymore. We're talking at, at the very least about an embodied computer, so a robot. And that has become, you know, it's, it's very clear uh, that it's actually very, very difficult to do. I mean, it's obviously it's possible. I mean, it's, it's not, it's, I don't think there's anything physically impossible about that, but it's remarkably difficult. I mean, there are uh, a number of issues, uh, a number of tasks that are very easy for a human being to do, which uh, turn out to be very, very difficult to solve from an AI perspective. Just, you know, things like uh, face recognition and, and solving simple puzzles, simple ways of, of walking around uh, or, or, or orientating oneself around an environment. So again, it's it's yeah, but you're right. I think that is um, that is another good understanding of the strong AI thesis. Yeah. And let me. I mean, I appreciate very much the distinction you you want to make because it's it doesn't seem, at least on the face, to be quite the same question. On the one hand, can we make a machine that thinks? And on the other hand. Is human thinking essentially what a com what a computer does? Is human thinking a computational process? But let me let me maybe make one suggestion as to why maybe they're not as different as, as somebody might like to, like to think they are, and that is that the only example of of mental states and thinking that we have are our own. And yeah. so when we talk about on the first side of it, can we make a machine that's thinking? What we mean is thinking in the sense that we commonly understand it, which is what he, people do, right? right? And so in a sense then, aren't we in a sense engaged in the same enterprise? And that is uh, whether, whether we think of it in the first way that you described or in the way that I described afterwards. Or do you think, still think we can uh, usefully separate these projects such that the, even if the second one doesn't work, there might be hope for the first? Right. I think that there is a conceptual distinction there, but, but whether that's actually going to turn out to be a distinction one can cash in somehow, uh, I think you're right. It's entirely open to, 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 to question. Let me, let me draw an analogy there with a very different field with which I'm more familiar as a, as a biologist, and that is the origin of life uh, uh, issue. Right. So when we say that we are looking for life on, say, Mars or Titan or whatever, you know, whatever it is that we're going to be looking for life, uh, we clearly mean life as we understand it today on planet Earth, because that's the only model we have, right? And and people have tried to generalize and have tried to say, well, but you know, here are the general characteristics of life, so we think that these other things that other things can qualify as being alive, or here's maybe uh, ways in which you can have a life that is not based on carbon, like the one on Earth is, but maybe on some different elements such as silicon. But those, those attempts have immediately run into, into serious problems. So because if you start defining, first of all, it's notoriously difficult to define what life is. Right. Just like it's notoriously difficult to define what consciousness is or what intelligent, uh, intelligence is. So there is an analogy uh, right there. 
Uh, and, you know, often we basically end up saying, well, we know it when we see it kind of thing, um, which is not very satisfying, but, you know, sometimes that is the best you can do. Uh, moreover, uh, whenever people are started saying, well, okay, so life is something that's characterized by, I don't know, it's a system that is capable of uh, reproducing and, and, uh, and you know, uh, evolving. And, you know, so, so this is the, the, the Darwinian definition, basically, of life. Well, they are fine. That's all fine and dandy. Except that, of course, if you define it that way, we already have computer algorithms that you would have to define as alive. And frankly, I don't go that far. You know, I, I don't, I'm not going to bite that kind of bullet. You know, I don't think computer algorithms are, are alive. And so if your definition of life implies that computer algorithms are alive just because they can evolve, mutate, and evolve in response to their environment, then, I, then I'm going to have to say, I got a problem with your definition of life. I, I'm not going to accept that computer algorithms are, are alive. So that's one thing. The other direction in which people have gone uh, classically in terms of sort of exploring the question of life is, okay, let's... Let's try to think, this, this was Carl Sagan famously, for instance, let's try to think about uh, can we have, can we conceive of a life form that is not based on carbon? Um, and typically the, the, um, the, the, the major candidate, viable candidate is, is uh, silicon, uh, which is an element very close to carbon in the, in the periodic table, right? Is it possible to have a silicon-based life? Sure, it's possible, I suppose. But the problem is chemists immediately started pointing out that actually, Silicon has a lot less chemical flexibility than carbon. The carbon really is special. Carbon is, the, is, is an element that really can do amazing things in terms of sort of bonding, uh, not too tightly but not too loosely with a bunch of other things and in a bunch of different combinations, which no other element pretty much on the periodic table can do. Now, that doesn't in and of itself show that the that life is possible only based on carbon, but it surely puts the burden of proof on the other side, of, I would think. So similarly, in the case of artificial intelligence, right, I mean, you're, you're right. The only example we have is the human one, uh, or at least humans and closely related primates, uh, let's say, which means these are all biological systems. Uh, in, in all cases, you know, we define uh, intelligence in a very particular way, um, and, and these are all systems that are made of certain particular things that work in a certain particular way. Is it possible, is it conceivable to uh, replicate some of those characteristics uh, of behavior and, and in, at some level intelligence by using different systems built in different ways and of different uh, uh, materials? I don't know. I mean, we don't have an example of that. Right, right. Uh, it's, not, it's not a – sometimes I feel, you know uh, – um, like like uh, supporters of strong AI and a number of philosophers of science, uh, sorry, philosophers of mind, uh, just too quickly say, well, there's nothing uh, special about the human mind. Well, how do you know? There's, we don't have other examples of minds out there. So to me, that feels pretty damn special. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's, that's specialness seriously, I suppose. It's really very interesting, and I think I can already see where some of our conversation is going to go because you've already gotten to the issue of whether um, substrate plays an essential role in this, and and then on the other side, some of the reasons why people want to sort of get away from the idea that, that it's based on substrate, which I think we're going to get to. But I just wanted to say one thing that occurred to me while you're talking about the biology case. I think at one level, the problem here that we're dealing with is a problem inherent to limitations of language, and that is, um, you really once you start asking, can we er imagine a radically different X? <laughs> um, what, what you mean by radically different is really radically different. Um, you start pushing the boundaries of 
Well, then would it count as an X, right? Um, David, <laughs> Davidson, has, Davidson has this famous example where he says, you know, the problem with imagining an untranslatable language is how would you know it was a language to begin with, right? <laughs> <laughs> and not just noises, right? Um, and so I think that there is a certain dislimitation in terms of the way that we form and use concepts. Um, when you ask the question, well, can you imagine a life form that is ra- so radically different that right. it even begins to... Not, no longer even bear vague family resemblances, right? Exactly. You start you start getting beyond. It's not an answerable question, right? Exactly. Yeah. So I think that that it is much more productive to keep the discussion to well, can we imagine something that either is very much like human intelligence or is n- is in that family? Uh, to use your, your terminology, it is in that family resemblance uh, neighborhood, uh, and you know that that neighborhood is in fact fuzzy, uh, you know, there's no sharp boundaries uh, for these kinds of things. Uh, but if you start talking about something radically different, then then I'm afraid that the discussion is off the table until you can actually operationalize, well, what do you mean by uh, by that radically different? Radically different in what sense? And if it is that radically different, as you said, why would it count as a case of intelligence or, or consciousness right, right, or both? Right. right. So, so I, think, I think this is a good place now to, to get into the next topic, which is how you see, what do you see as the relationship between this research program, this way of thinking about uh, the mind and about thoughts, um, the relationship between it and the Turing test? Ah. So, okay, so... so got to talk about the Turing test. You right. cannot have a conversation like this without the Turing test. That's right. Okay, so um, how do you see the relationship between the Turing test and this research program? So the Turing test, right, we should remind, I mean, I'm sure yes. that most of our uh, viewers will know what the Turing test is. But uh, this, this is the idea, which goes back to Alan Turing, that, you know, how, how can you possibly tell if a computer is intelligent or not? And the idea is, well, why don't we do a behavioral test, essentially? Um, and but in, not probably not coincidentally, although I'm not sure about about the connect the direct connect if there is any direct connection there. But uh, Turing proposed that test pretty much at the time where behaviorism actually was a was a, a thing in in psychology, which is you know forget about in, internal mental mental states because we do not don't have access to internal mental states. Uh, the psychologists were saying, uh, just look at behaviors. The behaviors is, is it's all it's all the data you can get, and that's all where where you should stick. Well. Turing essentially proposed the same thing uh, and he said, well, look, if, if we imagine the situation where you are communicating with another entity uh, through a keyboard and a screen and you keep, you keep the communication going for a while and you cannot tell whether the, the, the entity at the other end of the terminal is a human being or a computer for all effective purposes, you have to admit that the computer is in fact intelligent. Behaviorally, uh, it comes across as intelligent, right? Now, that's fine on the, as far as it goes, except for a couple of somewhat major caveats, I would say. First of all, if we do buy that there is a distinction between intelligence and consciousness, I may be, you know, a computer may be able to pass the intelligence test and not necessarily the consciousness test. In fact, it cannot pass the consciousness test because the Turing test is not a test of consciousness, right? It's not, it's, it's by definition, it's not about internal mental states. Um, so I can imagine having a computer that is very, very, uh, you know, good at answering my questions, got a knowledge database, uh, with, you know, with a software piece of software that allows it to understand, you know, nuances of human language or a particular human language, let's say English, 
answer the, the, the questions properly as if, in fact, there was somebody understanding there, but in fact, with, with no understanding, with no conscious experience. Now, before I go any further, I'm often accused, when I say something like this, of going for a uh, David Chalmers-style you know, zombie argument. That is, it sounds like what I just said is the same as saying, uh, oh, it is conceivable that uh, an entity with my internal uh, structure, you know, brain structure and everything, and outgoing behavior, uh, somebody who is talking like me and reacting like me, internally actually does not feel anything, does not have internal mental states. That is not at all what I'm saying. Because what I'm saying is, you know, remember, in the case of the Turing test, you don't know what the internal structure of the computer is. In fact, internal structure right. is normally very, very different. So I'm not making a zombie argument at all, even though sort of superficially it kind of sounds like that. So the, that's the first problem with the Turing test. That is, it's a test of intelligence at best, however you want to define intelligence, um, but not a test of consciousness. The other thing is, the way it, is, it has been implemented, of course, so far, because there is, you know, there is an annual competition actually for, for for computers to pass the Turing test, right? And this past year, actually, at the last edition, somebody claimed that they actually passed it, and it turns out they were a little bit cheating because they um, presented a uh, a character that was, uh, uh, I think, it was a, a boy uh, whose native language was not, you know, was not English, which meant that the computer program was automatically excused essentially for from making. You know, when he was making mistakes in, in, in answering certain questions. Now, that's a little bit of cheating. But regardless, the test as it's implemented, I think, lasts only about five minutes. Um, so it's a, it's a determined period of time. And one can make the argument that we know already that it is possible to mimic a conversation with a human being for much longer than that. And this has been possible for a long time. I don't know if you've ever seen uh, the ELISA program, uh, you know, uh, computer therapy program. This has been going on for, you know, way before there were personal computers. And you can now download it or play on, uh, with it on, on, the, on the Internet. And it's this computer that simulates a therapist, right? And so you can ask questions to ELISA, and ELISA responds uh, in a way that sounds very much like a therapist. Now, I don't think that's a, bad, a particular compliment to therapists because it's like, that's funny. <laughs> say, oh, it's so easy to simulate a therapy, a therapy session. That actually, but, was, that actually was first imagined in a science fiction novel called Gateway by Frederick Pohl. That's yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. He has, the, he has a he's – the whole thing is backsplash of him talking to this machine shrink um, about what happened to him. Um, and if you play with, with Eliza, you do get this feeling that you're talking for a while that you're talking to a human being. I mean, after a while, it gets repetitive and you kind of sort of figure out that you can ask the kind of question that, you, that stumps the computer program. But Eliza's code is incredibly simple and it's not very adaptive. We can now uh, you know, write code that is much, much more flexible, much more uh, adaptive, that, that draws on large databases so that I can easily imagine a good computer programmer that can write a program that can fool most of us for hours, if not, if not more. But does that show that the computer programming question actually understands what's going on? I, I don't think so. I think that the, the, the Turing test is hopeless in that sense precisely because what is supposed to be its strength, which is ignoring the internal mental states of the, of the machine, is actually the crucial weakness. Well, without the in, in access to the internal mental states, without the equivalent of a sort of an fMRI machine uh, that looks at what's going on inside the computer, you, don't, you, know, it, you can't tell the real thing from a simulation. All right, so let me let, let me defend the Turing test a little bit and see what see see what you think. Um, uh, 
um, I could see two reasons why something like the Turing test might be appealing from the standpoint, um, even, even today, I mean, I think you could make a case, and, and I, w- I, w- I would say the following. First, um, it's a way of getting around the problem, of other, the problem of other minds. In other words, there is a classic skeptical problem in philosophy, which is how do you know other people are thinking? And let's, right. let's, let's, let's not even try to disambiguate intelligence from consciousness. Let's just talk ordinary language. Right. Is that individual over there thinking, okay? Right. Um, and or is he a zombie? Because the equivalent to the, the other possibility right, right. is a zombie, right? The, so the fact of the matter is, is that the basis on which we infer other people are thinking is on the basis of their observable behavior. Um, and if you ask, well, how else would you know... Um, it's hard to see what an answer would be. Now, some people have tried to say, well, you can justify the inference that the other person is thinking beyond the behavioral evidence on the basis of analogy, because we know that we're thinking, and therefore... But arguments from analogy are notoriously uh, problematic um, and, and difficult to, to, ultimately, uh, to ultimately justify. So on one, one hand, I could see the Turing test is a way of sort of changing the standard such that you avoid the other mind's problem, right? That the way, the way we decide whether this uh, machine thinks is the same way we decide whether the guy sitting next to you is thinking. We look at how they act. Right. Um, along those lines also, you know, Wittgenstein has, who, who is very suspicious of internal explanations of external behavior, said there would be something very perverse if we saw someone writhing on the floor, to ask whether they're really in pain or whether they're just, I mean, in other words, this is just not the way we ascribe on a normal basis. We really do ascribe roughly along the lines of of Turing tests, of little mini Turing tests in the sense that go on all the time. So that would be one plug I would make for it. The other plug I would make for it would be, it it also gets around the question of substrate. In other words, Sure. Precisely what we were talking about before. Could radically different kinds of things think? Right. Um, and we, where we're pushing the boundaries of imagination. Well, we have this very deep-seated intuition that at least there's no reason why they shouldn't be able to, right? And so isn't a way to avoid all of this to get away from questions of substrate and what things are made out of and um, uh, talk instead about how they perform? Yeah. So No, you're absolutely right. But let me push back a little bit. Yeah, please, please. On the first count especially um you're absolutely right of course that when we're talking if we're talking about sort of everyday experience yes that is how we tell not only if the person next to us is is thinking uh uh uh, you know by the way he's talking and all that but if you answer the phone for instance now we we do it we run a Turing test every time we answer the phone yeah because how do you know that there is a thinking person on the other side well you start talking to them and pretty much you'll figure out if it is a recording or not uh, right so that's true in terms of sort of everyday experience. But if we're talking about a science of artificial intelligence, uh, that's where I'm going to invoke my background as a biologist and say, well, yes, but a biologist got a better argument uh, for, for why do I think that other people think mm-hmm. as opposed to just uh, behaving as if. And the argument comes from the coupling of the behavioral component. The behavioral component has to be there. I mean, without that, you know, you, you, we're dead in the, in the water. But uh, that one, with all the information we have now about how, how we think, you know, what makes it possible for us to think. So you open somebody's skull and there's a brain. And, and, and if you start poking on that brain in certain ways, 
uh, certain things happen, including the impairment of language, for instance, or the impairment of certain cognitive functions and so on. So you, know, you can experiment with this kind of stuff. You can also describe it uh, functionally to some extent without opening it up, right? So the, the, the functional MRI uh, studies for all the hype that often accompanies them, but still, they do show you, at least indirectly, that certain areas of the brain uh, are functionally, seem to be functionally correlated uh, to, to certain uh, human behaviors or certain ways of, of reacting. It would be really surprising, let's say, if we were talking, you know, I was, I was talking to, to somebody and then I opened up his, his, his skull and it was empty. Right, there was nothing right. inside. Right, right. right. Now, then I would start thinking, whoa, wait a minute. There's got to be some ruse here. There's got to be some, 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 some issue. Or maybe I am, in fact, witnessing a situation in which somebody can uh, do what a human being can do by, by completely different means, by, by, by radically different means. So I do think that there is a sense in which um, we, want to, we want more than just the behavior. If we're talking not about a day to, you know, an, an everyday encounter with somebody, but we're talking about a sort of a scientific approach to, to something. But, I, but you're right on the second point, that is, that brings <coughs> us to the problem of, of substrate. And, you know, is the substrate crucial or not? We don't know. <laughs> and uh, and the, it, it, it really is going to be very, very difficult to find out because we can find out all sorts of interesting things about the limits of our own substrate. Right? As I said, you, you can take parts of the brain out, of actual human brains out, or you can interfere with them. You can do all sorts of interesting experiments and show that certain things seem to be certain, certain uh, areas of the brain and certain connections within the brain seem to be crucial for certain cognitive tasks. What we cannot do is to replace those parts with sort of artificial parts, let's say made of, of silicon. How do we know that, Massimo? I mean, we replace other parts well, of the I body. Mean, technically, I mean, technically, we cannot know okay. it. Uh, it's not, I don't, I'm not saying that it's impossible. Now, as you know, there is this thought experiment, again, due, uh, well, one of these versions is due to Chalmers, where he says, well, but what if you replace neuron by neuron, uh, you know, bit by bit with the equivalent made in, say, silicon, the functional equivalent made in silicon, would you not, what, you know, at some point, would you not have, have uh, an entire brain that is made of silicon? And the answer to that is, well, I don't know. It's very possible that at some point you simply die. You know, you, you just got enough silicon in your brain that you're dead. End the story. Um, or is it it's possible... Your, your audio, hold on a second. Yep. Okay, you're good. Go on. I think we had a little hiccup. Um, so it's it's very possible that all will happen when you replace when you start replacing uh, carbon-based neurons with their silicon equivalents. That at some point you're dead. That's it. I mean, we don't know. I don't want to get too technical on this, but let me just ask you one thing in this specific area. Um, what is different about your intuitions or understanding on this with respect to neurons as opposed with other parts of the body? In other words, there's nothing at all odd or counterintuitive about the idea that we can replace organs and other parts of the body with stuff made out of, with, with replacements made out of a different substrate. What is, what, is, what is it about the neural activity you think, at least intuitively to you, that seems to suggest that maybe it's, it is more substrate dependent than the, the organs in our body and other parts of our bodies? Uh, that's an excellent question, and and the, the the difference I think is first of all, unlike any other part of the of the body, uh, the brain is involved with precisely the kind of stuff that we think it's it's posing the problem to begin with, right? So the ability to generate qualitative experience of what it is like to do something, everything else does not do that, 
uh, all of the other parts of the body don't have that property. So the question is, you know, that doesn't imply, that doesn't mean necessarily, I, I want to stress that I'm agnostic about this question. I don't, I don't positively make the claim. I don't ma I'm not making the positive claim that it is impossible to do, to get conscious experience by using different materials. All I'm saying is I'm wary of people that say, of course it's possible without further argument. You know, right, we, we right. don't know. Um, and I base that on the, on the fact that, you know, lots of people seem to forget that neurons are not just a matter of electrical impulses. They also are a matter of very specific physical chemical connections, right? And uh, so if it were just a matter of, of electrical impulses, then I would say, well, it's more than likely that you'd be able to replace it, replace them with something else, as long as they are, that something else is sort of functionally equivalent, right? It does, it, it carries electricity in a similar way. But that's not all the neurons do. Uh, neurons are cells. They're living cells. They're, they're, they're made of stuff. And that stuff does something. They're not just a conduit, a passive conduit for uh, electric impulses. So you can replace other parts of the human body, let's say bones, for instance, with pieces of metal. But that's because bones are not particularly active. You know, the major thing the bones do is, is just provide support, you know, uh, uh, physical support for, for things. Uh, and so it's it's obvious why those are more replaceable. Other things are a little more complicated. I mean, uh, you know, artificial arts are more complicated uh, that you can make them of non-biological material, but they're more complicated because they actually their functional um, uh, structure, the, the the structure that makes possible their function is more complex and it's more it's more more nuanced. But in the case of the brain, it is the most complex organ that we have by far. Right. And and so you now again, I think it's an open question. Yeah. And it sounds to me—it sounds to me like I mean, the obvious disanalogy for the layperson is that the principles of operation of a thing like a heart is essentially mechanical, and so it can be replaced by a, another mechanical device that does the same thing. But the principle of operation of the brain is neurochemical, That's and right. there you actually have to have the chemicals; otherwise, it's not the same process, right? They're, they're not functionally isomorphic and they are fun they may be functionally isomorphic but that does that does not mean that they are that that, that they perform that they, they can perform the same task they are right. substrate dependent in that sense right. um, as i said we do have examples of substrate dependency in biology in other areas of biology like uh you know one of my favorite examples which i take straight from uh um from john Searle is photosynthesis right, right. so you know, different different organisms can do photosynthesis. Uh, not only plants, but a number of different kinds of you know algae, green algae, brown algae. A lot of bacteria can do you know uh, green bacteria, blue green bacteria can can do photosynthesis. And in fact, they can do it by, by using different substrates. It's not always the same molecule. Uh, you know, uh, green plants use chlorophyll, which is why they're green uh, to begin with. But there are other other organisms that use different kinds of of um, uh, of substrates. So clearly photosynthesis is a biological process which is not tied to a particular type of substrate. But it's not that you can just replace anything right. with it, right? Whatever you replace it with has to have certain characteristics. Um, it, or in particular, it has to be a photoreceptor, for one thing. Otherwise, forget it. But it's not just that it has to be a photoreceptor. It has to be a molecule that is made in a particular way so that it not only captures the light, but it transduces the electrons, uh, and, and so on and so forth. So I don't see why anybody would think that the brain is different. That doesn't mean, it doesn't, just like in the case of the photosynthesis, it doesn't imply that it has to be made exactly in the way in which the human brain is made. It's very possible that there is a range of, 
of materials and a range of doing of, of putting it together. What I don't think is that you can make it out of just anything. Right. But if you are, but if you're a strict fun, a strict functionist in terms of philosophy of mind, you will have to agree. Uh, in fact, as you know, this is in the literature that uh, uh, you can gain consciousness out of pieces of cardboard or out of billions of Chinese organized in the, in the proper way. No, I don't think so. I, yeah. I just I think that's just crazy. Yeah, and actually, that's that was going to be my next topic with some of the ideas underlying um, the strong AI thesis. Um, and by way of a segue, um, maybe I'll just say one more thing about um, because when we talk about the Turing test, we're really talking about moving to a performative a performative account of thinking and understanding as opposed to um, some other sort of account. And, um, and I, I think that maybe the last thing that I want to say about why this was attractive, and this historically is part of the reason why it was so attractive in the philosophy of mind, was the failure of a kind of physicalistic reductionism. Yeah. And so the big thing for a while... I'm thinking of uh, JJC Smart's sensation and brain processes and some of the other uh, uh, prominent first-line physicalists, was that we would be able to show that thoughts and other mental states are simply identical with physical states of the brain. Right. Um, and we don't need to go into a whole discussion of reductionism because we've done it, we've done it before at some length. Um, for whatever various reasons, that, that program uh, failed. And so... Um, partly because of this idea that we've been talking about of multiple realizability. Um, and so I think that maybe the reason why this whole, this whole way of thinking about it became attractive, it wasn't just because of a, a sort of a, a, a vague intuition of multiple realizability. When we actually tried to give physicalistic accounts, they seemed obviously incorrect. They seemed like obviously like they couldn't be correct. And so the idea was to move maybe to a level of abstraction. Right. Uh, uh, you know, in, you know, uh, that would allow us to talk about these things without without um, having to 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 make the case for uh, physical identifications that just we were not going to ever ever going to get. We're never going to get, in my view, some account that's going to tell me precisely which set of chemicals equals my belief that Florida is hot in the summer. Right. Yeah. No, that's uh, right. Right. So, 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 do you think that that also is part of the reason? Is that it was partly because of the failure of the attempt to give a physicalistic reduction. Uh, I think you're completely right on that one. But then there's. It seems to me uh, that the, the sort of the pendulum kind of swung far to the other side of of, of the of the field, so to speak. And and now we get what, for all effective purposes, looks to me like a type of dualism, which is explain is that. It, well, so so this this idea that is now pretty popular that that um, thinking uh, or consciousness or both are essentially substrate independent, right? So all these idea that you can now upload not now, but that you might be able to upload your mind to a, to a uh, computer, that sort of stuff. That, for all effective purposes, assumes that m the mind is in fact not a physical thing at all. That that can be instantiated. It's just pure information that it can be instantiated regardless of platform, right? Um, to me, that is a kind of a dualism. Of course, it's not a Cartesian type of dualism. I was going to say, it's, yeah, yeah. it's almost more like an Aristotelian dualism in the sense yeah. of distinguishing um, form from substrate, right? Correct, Correct. exactly. Yeah. 
and again, the, my objection to that is not necessarily that I think it's in, there's anything impossible, sort of in principle, to these kind of things. It's hard to tell what's impossible in principle. I mean, you know, very few things are impossible in principle. Right. If, they violate, if something violated the second principle of thermodynamics, that's prob- that's impossible. Uh, but a few, you know, very few things uh, fall into that category. So the question is, well, is it contingently possible? Is it feasible in a way, you know, do we have any idea of what, of how that would actually work? And my, whenever I consider those kind of questions and I go back to my background as a biologist and I say, well, biology tells us that, that substrates are important. Uh, there's, you know, plants don't think, regardless of, you know, actually some of our colleagues who have gone as far as writing essays about the feelings of plants, I don't think there is any shred of evidence or any particular reason to think that plants feel anything. They ju- and why is that? Why is it that any biologist would tell you that? Well, that's because they don't have a nervous system. Uh, and in fact, a lot of biologists would tell you that not everything even has a nervous system, has, has it complex enough for that thing to feel something. Uh, there's, you know, there's a lot of discussion, for instance, uh, I mean, this, this is going to be a little bit of an aside, but it might be important and interesting for our discussion. So there's been a lot of discussion recently about which animals are capable of feeling pain and which ones are not. Right. right. And so the, the suggestion, I mean, we don't, the short answer is we don't know. It's not, it's not true now. But, uh, but there, are, there are a few things you can do about it. So one thing you can do is to look at, well, do animals, uh, you know, which animals have the kind of neural receptors that we associate with pain? And it turns out most of them do. Okay, plants don't, bacteria don't, but lots of animals, in fact, pretty much almost every animal has the, has them. The, what makes things more complicated, however, you know, you can't jump say, jump jump ahead and say, ha ha. Therefore, even you know, uh, ants, for instance, feel pain. Well, not quite, because we know that biology does this funny thing. You know, evolution does this funny thing. It recycles structures. And 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 uh, and uh, different components for different functions. So just because you have something that looks like a neural uh, uh, receptor for pain, that doesn't mean you actually do feel are capable of feeling pain. Uh, you, you know, we have plenty of examples in the history of evolution where things have been recycled uh, to do different things. So how do we know? Well, somebody's pr- uh, you know, a number of people have suggested recently that that not only you want the animal to have the neural, the proper neural receptors. You also want that animal to display the proper kind of behavior. And so, one uh, uh, one interesting contrast is that between an ant and a crab. And if you cut off the leg of a of a crab, right, uh, the crab does react precisely in the way you which you would ex- you, you would expect an animal in pain to react. Okay, it tries to protect the, the injured part. It tries to sort of nurture the injured part. It reacts frantically, uh, you know, the, as soon as the thing is, has happened. Do the same thing to an ant. I don't, I'm not suggesting that people go out there and start chopping off ants all the, uh, uh, just to do the experiment. But if you do the same thing to an ant, you don't get that sort of behavior. The ant just keeps walking. Hmm. There's no protection. There's no nurturing. There's no nothing. So, you know, does that prove uh, anything? No. But it is consistent with the idea that uh, the crab does feel pain, at least at some level, to some extent, and the, and the ant probably doesn't. Uh, if that is true, that means that you have to have not only certain substrates in place, but also certain functional connections and certain, uh, you know, a number of other things have to be uh, there for the, in, the organism to feel pain. And feeling pain, of course, is one of the fundamental types of qualia. It's one of the fundamental types right. of yeah. conscious experience that, that we know of. Right. So all of this, just to say that, I think it's 
useful to remind ourselves that we're talking about biological organisms. And so when somebody says, well, there's no reason in principle why we cannot upload our consciousness to a computer, I think they're not taking the biology seriously. I don't think they have a good operational uh, definition of what consciousness is. And I honestly don't think they have an idea what, uh, how that would actually be done. Uh, Chalmers himself was kind of uh, interesting. I, I, I wrote uh, recently a commentary on a chapter that he published in a book, a sort of a response in the same book. And, uh, and his chapter was about mind uploading. But even in, at the end of that chapter, honestly, I must say, he said, well, if somebody came up to me and said, uh, here is a way to upload your consciousness to a computer, but it's destructive, you, you're going to die you know, in the process, you probably wouldn't do it. <laughs> and to me, that's, that's the proof in the pudding. It's like, I'm sorry. <laughs> right. then, then you're just making up stuff. And, you know, it's an interesting sort of general speculation. But if you're not willing to actually go and step to the right. through the transporter, you know, if we're in a Star Trek yeah. situation, then you don't really believe what you're saying. Right. You're just having a late night college conversation. Uh -huh. <laughs> right. Nothing wrong with that. But... <laughs> um, so... Okay, so so the two ideas that underlie the strong AI um, um, hypothesis, as we've been discussing it, um, are and please, if you think I'm getting this wrong or something, correct me. Are on the one hand, are one functionalism, and two computationalism. Okay, right. so functionalism is the view that we've already been discussing, and that is that um, our account of what a thought is uh, or any mental state is at a level of abstraction from the substratum. In other words, that we can give a purely uh, account, purely in terms of functions um, of thinking and believing and, and all the other mental states we want to talk about without mentioning any physical uh, substance. Um, and the, the classic way that this is particularly done is talked about is in terms of um, uh, the relationship between uh, a program and and the machine in which the program is instantiated. So you can give a description of all the states of the program without mentioning any of the specific parts of the machine. Um, and this is typically represented in the literature through what they call machine tables. Um, and you can do this for something as simple, simple as a Coke machine um, or allegedly as complex as a human as a human mind. So that's the idea of function. By the way, yeah, go ahead. That, that's exactly why I characterized that view as some is a type of dualism because there's a, this, this qualitative distinction basically between the software and the hardware. You know, right, that's, right. that's where the analogy comes from, the analogy with the computer. That's right. And that's really, right. the hardware is not made of anything. The hardware is information. It's implemented on a particular machine in a particular way, but it is in fact cross-platform. You uh, mean the software? The, the software, software. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Yeah. But it is in fact cross-platform at least to some extent. I mean, you ever, if you ever try to have a a Mac program run on a Windows machine or vice right, versa. Right. You'll see the limitations of, of cross-platforms plat anyway. But that's the basic idea, right? That, that software is a, it's, it's a very, very different kind of thing, yeah. uh, qualitatively speaking, from hardware. And actually, so, you know, actually, you know, it's even kind of worse than that, right? I mean, if you think about it, um, a program is really, or, or a description of a program is really an abstract object, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so there's something very odd about the idea that a thought would be an abstract object, right? Because yep. isn't a thought an active process? But how can an abstract object be involved? In other words, the very idea of it has of, of the idea that, that we can give a, an abstract account of thought and mind seems almost 
like a non-starter, right? Well, what do you mean that an yeah. abstract object thinks? What do you mean that a, right. you know? Right. But then I, I assume that brings us to your second point. Which right. Is, is, uh, so the second one was going to be the second element in the AI program is computationalism, right? And so that the, um, the way in which the kind of program it is, the kind of, of, of um, processes that are going on are computational processes, that what it is to think is very similar to what a computer does when it runs a program. That is, it performs operations on the formal properties of symbols, on their syntactic properties, because that's how, that's how uh, programs work. If people know programming, you know at the very bottom, ultimately, the, the programming languages are just series of zeros and ones, and the way that the machine uh, distinguishes one command from another is simply from the configuration of these, from, in a sense, the shape of these strings of characters, right? And so... The strong A program seems to me to be based on two assumptions. One is functionalism. That is, at the, that as a general matter, the account that we give of the mind is going to be pitched at this level of abstraction away from the substrate in terms of uh, functions. And then that specifically, the, way, the kind of functioning that the mind employs is like the kind of the way that a computer functions, that it operates. Would you say that that's, that's roughly a, yeah, a fair... Yeah, that's, that's a very good description. Now, the, sort of one immediate problem when you bring in computationism is that surprisingly there is not much of an agreement on what counts as a computation right so so i mean there is the the the, the turing church thesis about universal computability um there are people again chalmers comes to mind that go as far as saying that pretty much everything in the universe compute is a computer you know a rock is a computer you know anything that can have more than one state um is a computer now yes you can define computation uh in that sort of a broad uh, fashion, but the problem is, it seems to me that whenever you you expand the definition of of a concept that much, the concept is in in uh, uh, you know it risks losing meaning, or at least using losing usefulness. Yes, maybe there is some interesting way. So generally speaking, which a rock is a computer, but if that's what we're talking about, that's not helping me understanding human computation. Because we're not rocks, we're not even close to rocks. Right, right. right, right. So, so if you're telling me, well, you just, you know, this, this uh, uh, human mind is a computer because, in fact, uh, rocks are computers. Like, well, all right, that's uh, right there. It's a non-starter. Uh, you haven't told me anything enlightening about uh, what it is to to think as as a human being. You have to draw some more fine distinction there. Um, because, it, so this is in some sense is another example of. Uh, you know, we were talking about a minute ago about, about these, these idea that abstracting things and generalizing things can be helpful. And yes, sometimes it is. But sometimes there's the, the drawback is that, yeah, but now we are forgetting that we're talking about a very specific type of phenomena, uh, you know, uh, in this case, human intelligence, uh, which happens to be instantiated in a particular type of physical system. And if you go to general, uh, you may lose enough of the specifics then th that you're not talking about the same thing anymore. You know, now, now it's not particularly helpful. I don't, I don't find uh, computationalism. You know, computationalism comes out of an analogy again. And you just said a few minutes ago that analogical arguments are pretty weak. Uh -huh. uh, you know, if you think, and in fact, uh, before the invention of the digital computer, people thought of, of human beings as equivalent of, you know, of, of mechanical machines, right? Uh, you know, so so, but that's because that that's all they had available right, in terms right. of sort of analogy, and we don't think of people these days as the equivalent of you know sort of of automata. Um, so maybe 
you know, next century, somebody will come up with a different kind of analogy and we will not, no longer think of brains as computers. Uh, you know, computers are wonderful machines and, they, and we have learned, we learned a lot about, about um, certain aspects of what it means to uh, be intelligent, I suppose, by thinking about computers. But it's an analogy. And like all analogies, you get to the point where it's, you know, you're stretching it to the point that it not only it's no longer useful, but it actually may become harmful because you think you understand something when in fact you probably don't. So what what are people talking? There's somebody on Scientia who periodically comments who always who seems to be stuck in a feedback loop on this particular idea, and I never understood what it meant. And maybe you could explain it. What do, what do people talk mean when they're talking about computation in the biological context? Uh, good question. I mean, right. Uh, is there so, such a thing? Uh, there is such a thing as computational biology, but that's a whole different issue. Are uh, there processes in biology, though, that can be properly called computational, not in this overly vague way that you've described, but in which right. we could actually view as a, as computational in some meaningful sense? Yes, I, but I think that those are the ones that are actually the least relevant to this discussion. So, so there are you know the kind of things that, for instance, that the uh, peripheral nervous system does so, so the automatic reactions you know controlling the heart beat and you know things like that breathing that sort of stuff those actually can be described usefully in a computational sense because uh, they're fairly simple operations they're predictable there it is a you know it's it's a um, uh, it's a system that react that has ability to react to an, to external circumstances but within certain very specifiable parameters and so there's a lot of that stuff that can usefully be described computationally, but but then again, a lot lot of other biological processes can be described computationally. I mentioned photosynthesis not long ago. Now we do have complete computational models of photosynthesis, uh, and you know down to the quantum level, I mean, we understand and we can we can uh, replicate in a computer the photosynthetic process down to the quantum level. Yeah, but it's not going to produce sugar. Correctly, exactly. <laughs> so that's, that's, uh, getting out of it is because simulation is sugar. Now, uh, of course, whether that is a problem for human thinking or not, it's, it depends on what you mean by human thinking, right? Because lots of people say, well, but, but it's not like the brain is, is producing something. It's not a thought is a physical process. Well, isn't it? Because I would say that, in fact, what the brain does is to produce electrical signals and chemical signals. That's what it does. Um, That's interesting, though. Depending on how you describe it, I could see it being more or less intuitive. So, for example, running is a physical process. Right. But don't tell me that if I lose my legs and I now have mechanical legs that I'm no longer running. Of course I'm right. running, right? right. Um, so if you describe what's going on up here as thinking, that right. sounds a lot like running. Well, okay, well, we could – but if you describe it as – what did you just say? Producing certain chemicals that, of course right. – so, I mean, it's not, right? Right, so the level – I mean the way – the level at which you describe the phenomena sort of really radically changes the intuitions, right? But why would you say – what would be a reason for thinking it's less like running and more like – I think it goes back. Yeah, that's a good question. That's a perfectly uh, valid question. And uh, I'm not sure that I have a particular particular answer to it, except to go back to what we said a few minutes ago, which is, yes, but the brain is a different kind of organ. Mechanical from, uh, versus. Exactly. Mechanical versus electro, electrical uh, uh, chemical. 
so again, it, you know, uh, it's, I hope it's clear that I'm not suggesting there's anything magic about the brain. Um, you know, it's not, it's not, I'm not a mystic, uh, uh kind of, uh, person. So I, I, I do think it's, it's all about physical processes, but those physical processes are of a particular kind. And I think it, it, it behooves us to take them seriously as a particular type of, uh, uh physical process and not confuse them with other physical processes. So mechanical processes is one thing, uh, electrophysiological uh, process, electrochemical process is another thing. Um, that seems to be related. I mean, there is at least prima facie reason to think that it is the, 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 the shift from mechanical to electrophysiological that makes consciousness possible. And, you know, we, we wouldn't be able to, you know, I don't think anybody has even suggested that we would be able to create a mechanical uh, computer capable of consciousness. Yeah, yeah. I, I didn't even mention consciousness just because I, I think that if we, if, we, if we get too detailed, we're going to have too many problems that we have to chase down. So I'm just talking about thinking in the general sort of sense and, and I'll let people uh, worry about whether that implies more or less consciousness. Um, before we get just to the question of the, some of the arguments against uh, strong AI, I just wanted to uh, about something you just said before that interests me. Um, you said that there are certain biological processes that can be described in computational terms right. um, without it being just a vagary, a game of vagary. Um, right. But is it just that they can be described that way post hoc, or is there actually some plausible notion that the body is actually running an organic program? Ah, that's a good question. Uh, no, I tend to, to reject the idea that the body is anything like a computer at any level. Uh, if you go all the way down to the molecular, the basic molecular level, and you're, people have been talking for a long time about genes as blueprints, as programs. Yes, I've heard that kind right? of talk. Yeah. yeah, and that metaphor is dead in the water. Explain why, if you can, in a layman's term. Um, so, so this was a very popular metaphor for, for, for a long time. Uh, and, then, and then we got the Human Genome Project. Right. And so the human genome project, if you if you go back to the original to the early literature where people were trying to convince uh, uh, colleagues and, and in fact, um, uh, policymakers to fund the human genome project, to get in, on board with the with the project. Uh, the thing that you would always hear is like, wow, we're going to have a human being on a CD. Because, you know, at the time they used CDs for distorting image uh, uh, information. Right. Uh, and it's like there was no cloud. And, um, and the thing, the thought was, well, once you have the sequence of DNA, uh, you will know what makes a human being. You'll know, you'll, you'll know, therefore, we could uh, go on and you know, cure all sorts of diseases, cancer, blah, blah, et cetera, et cetera. None of that has happened. None of it. Uh, the Human Genome Project was a wonderful uh, research project, scientific research project. We learned a lot. Uh, and we're now learning a lot more by expanding it to other species as well as to, uh, uh, you know, a variety of genomes within the human, the human population. But one thing we don't have is a human being on a CD. And the reason we don't have a human being on a CD is because DNA is not a computer program. Uh, it's, it's, it's to make a human being or to make any living organism, it's a developmental process which relies, yes, on information for sure, but that information is not only, first of all, it's not coming only from the, from the DNA. It's coming from 
uh, all sorts of other, you know, mushy material that we inherit from our parents. You know, the, the cytoplasm in, in the egg, the, the, the mitochondria in the, in the sperms, you know, things like that. You inherit that sort of stuff, and that sort of stuff is crucial. Without that, you're not, you don't get a human being, a functioning human being. It's a developmental process. It's a developmental process that is mediated by all sorts of other chemicals, uh, some of which are inherited, some of which are not, but they are not DNA. They're not, they don't look like anything like a codify, a code of any, of any sort. And of course, there is an environmental input, crucial environmental input. Right. Without environmental input, you don't get a functional uh, uh, organism. So to me, that says that even at that level, where it was most promising, the metaphor of any aspect of a human being uh, being a equivalent to a computer program has failed abysmally. It's just not that way. It doesn't work that way. And so I don't see any reason why you would want to say, well, okay, it didn't work for DNA, but for the brain. Right. Which which if if it didn't, if if it didn't work at the simpler level, it's certainly not going to work at the more complex one, in which there are even more variables that that impinge upon the specific shape of that the thing takes. Right? I mean, Do it then, right? right? <laughs> <laughs> hey. So so um, that's that's really all very interesting. And um, um, so let's talk. Um, we're getting we're getting to the latter part of of our of our talk. Let's talk a little bit about some of the one of the classic arguments against this, and I and I guess. We've already, in a sense, voiced a lot of objection to this, um, a lot of it having to do with your belief that the substrate independence just simply isn't going to work or is very unlikely to work, that when we get to too level, an abstracted level of description, we're, we're no longer uh, really talking about the thing that we're talking about. We're talking about something else. Um, but one of the arguments that has been most potent um, in, this, in this area Focus is not on the functionalism, which is what most of our objections have been to, but on the computationalism. And that is, um, and I'm talking about, of course, John Searle's famous Chinese room thought experiment, which I'm sure when you post this on Scientia is going to cause everyone to have apoplexy because there's people that are convinced that that's a terrible, terrible argument. He's um, again. That's right. He's room again. Yeah, yeah but I think, it's, I think it's a very strong argument because it, it does somewhat get at what you were talking about. It's like, look, if by computation you mean anything like what computers do, then it's immediately clear that a computer... Wait, if by computation you mean anything like what computers do, and if by thinking you mean anything like what people do, then it's obvious that a system simply running a computer program cannot be thinking because, Searle's argument goes, when a computer performs operations upon symbols, it does so simply on their syntactic properties, meaning their shapes. It does not do so on the basis of their semantic properties, namely their meaning. In other words, the computer has no idea what the meanings of the symbols it operates are on. It simply has a list of rules that it follows. And Searle gives this very sort of intuitive, illustrative example uh, to show this, that a computer wouldn't be thinking just by virtue of doing that, by imagining a human being doing what the computer does. So you give the human being a bunch of writing, none of which he knows what the symbols mean, and then you give him a bunch of rules. If you see three, these three lines, uh, uh, take two lines, draw a circle, and, and, and stick the paper out of the slot. And if you see those four, and so on and so forth. Um, and so tried to show that you, know, you, you, you could, in a sense, have a person follow instructions in the same way a computer does, and it would be very obvious that the person had no understanding of what they were saying. Um, and that therefore the machine has no idea what it's saying, and therefore this whole idea of computation 
as a model of what we do when we think is wrong-headed to start with. What's your view of the Searle, uh, the Searle thought experiment? I am constantly puzzled by just how misunderstanding there has been about that, that thought experiment. Uh, you know, there's, as you know, there's a huge literature on, on the Chinese room. Um, and, of course, Searle himself has gone several times in details answering a number of, uh, of objections and so on and so forth. But I always thought that the experiment, the way you described it, is in fact very powerful, not just because it appeals to my intuitions, because, you know, intuitions are uh, not necessarily reliable. You have to be uh, careful. So, They're unavoidable, but you have to be careful exactly. how you use them. Right. Yeah. And, and of course, my intuition, you know, somebody can simply make the argument, well, my intuition doesn't go that way, etc. But but to me, the, the thought experiment is simply a way, as you put it a minute ago, to make uh, to, to use an analogy, to use a sort of a, a, a fanciful situation, to make a very basic point, which is there's a distinction between syntax and semantics. And in order to get thinking in the way, in, and since we know that computers do syntax, but not semantics, we know that human beings do semantics as well as syntax, you need a way to bridge those two. That's not to say that this is impossible. This is not to say there's no argument in the Chinese room. The Chinese room is not, not an argument that says, oh, it's impossible to do it. It is simply a, uh, a reminder that there is a missing step there, and that missing step is probably crucial. How do we get the, 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 the meaning, the, the, you know, the, the, uh, the understanding, if you will, right. of what's going on and not just the, the symbol shuffling? And, you know, to me, you know, when people, people start sort of hand-waving and say, well, you know, if the symbol shuffling gets complex enough, you get meaning out of it. No, you don't. You, you, you don't. It, it, it's, not, it's, a, it's, a, it's a different kind of thing uh, right. that you're getting out of it. So I don't doubt there is a way to get it because just like, you know, human beings, again, are biological processes. We do it, right? You know, so yeah. we do it. So it's clearly possible to do it. And it's not, it doesn't require any miracles. But we do not know at the moment how this is done. We really don't have a good, at least, at least as far as I can tell, we do not have a very good theory, a particularly good theory of meaning, especially not one that is rooted in the biological processes underlying uh, how the human brain does it. I mean, you know, as you know, we, we do have a number of theories of mean, of, of, um, of semantics, uh, but they tend to be all expressed at a very abstract level, you know, sort of philosophy of mind, and they're not empirically grounded. And I want to see a theory of meaning that is empirically grounded. At that point, I'll be able to say, aha, so this is how the human brain does it. Now let's see uh, if and how we can actually replicate it in, a, in an artificial system. Uh, but until I, get, I see that, uh, I, I'm going to be skeptical of any sort of general uh, hand-waving that says, no, 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 the, the Chinese room is not a problem. And as you know, people who want to deny, want to reject the Chinese room, do get into these really weird situations where they have to admit that, you know, the room is thinking uh, or that, you know, a population of people are organized in a certain way is thinking. It's like, no. Yeah. <laughs> I, I yeah. find that not only counterintuitive, but just... Clearly, a result of hand waving. Uh, you, you know, you're, you're not telling. What what I see happening in those cases is a prior ideological commitment to the computational theory of mind, uh, or to some kind of computational account of mind. And so, if you have that commitment, you have to buy the bullet. Yeah. If you have that commitment and you're presented with something like the Chinese room, then you have to buy the bullet and say, "Yeah, the room is thinking." Yeah. Um, but to me, it's easier to say, "Well, no, there is something." 
wrong or at least something incomplete, something missing right. in computational theory, and let's work on it. Right. Let's let's just be for quickly uh, very clear about about what the problem is because when you say the syntax and semantics, people may not may not know exactly what that means. So let's just let's just say at a bare minimum, if I if I am thinking, doing what we call thinking, then if I think if I think that uh, my dog, I hear you go you talk. I know she's she's she'll stop in a second. Somebody, my wife's at the door. Um, at a minimum. To be able to say that I'm genuinely thinking, one has to be able to say something of the, of the following. If, for example, I think that hamburgers are delicious, at le- to, be, to genuinely think that, I at least have to know what the string hamburger means, right? I need to know that hamburgers refers to hamburgers, and I need to know what delicious means, right? Um, the problem is, is that when a computer processes a sentence... It does so purely on the shapes of the letters and of the uh, of, of the of the order in which they're strung, um, and so it's un it's not only unclear it's completely obscure what it would mean to think to say that what the computer is doing is thinking because as you say as you this was the way you put it it has a syntax but it has no semantics meaning it it's performing formal operations but there's no credible sense in which you could say that it knows what these words mean now the question is well there's two questions a what gives a string its meaning to begin with um, and B, what would have to be involved to credibly say that something understands it or grasps it? And this is, of course, notoriously difficult. Um, but it, it has led the people in, on the strong asset to try to come up with additions to their computationalism. I think like, well, if you attach a, a video camera to it such that every instance of the, of the string hamburger is caused by an image of a hamburger, then we could say that the machine uh, uh, understands the, by that string the word hamburger, um, and Searle actually considers objections like that um, in the in the in the sequels to his article, his original article. And the problem with all these additions is that it keeps seeming like there's something missing, yeah. um, which is why people either then get spooky and start invoking all sorts of weird stuff, or they say that maybe the problem is that our conception of understanding does, at some very deep level, involve consciousness, right? Such that such that there has to be a certain conscious awareness of the relation between the string and the hamburger. That's right. Before I can credibly say that you know that the string means hamburger, but that then lands us in the consciousness problem and nobody has the faintest idea. Exactly. Um, but, but what I, I, I do think, though, is that the argument does show, in this sense, I don't think it's just intuitional. The argument does, the, the thought experiment does show that whatever thinking is, it cannot be computation as we currently understand it as in computer science. Yeah. I, right? I agree. Or at the very least, it cannot be only computation. Right. I'm sorry. Yes. There may be computational aspects. Very likely there are computational aspects, but it's not the whole story. There has to be something else. And unfortunately, at the moment, we have no clue to what that something else is. Right, right. Now, right. I'm not a mysterian. Uh, as you know, that's another term that is banded around in this kind of discussion. You know, people like Colin McGinn, uh, for instance, say that, well, you know, just, we just have to understand that that uh, we may not have uh, brains that are sophisticated enough to really get to that, to the point of sort of understanding how they themselves work. Fine. Um, well, it's, it's possible. I mean, I, I don't, I don't, 
you know, I don't, I don't think that that there is any. I mean, there's. We do know that there are certain things that the brain, human brain, cannot do. I mean, you know, I cannot keep in my mind, you know, like thirty strings or you know numbers or things like that. So there's plenty of stuff. In fact, ironically, there's plenty of things that a computer can do already, and I can't do, uh, which is why I use computers to begin with. Otherwise, I, I wouldn't need them, right? Uh, so I don't have a problem with the idea that there are limitations to the human mind and there may be certain things we're never going to be able to understand. But I don't find the mysterious position particularly useful because then it says, okay, so now what? Are we going to just give up and go yeah, home? Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. No, I think there's still a reasonable expectation that somebody one of these days will figure it out. I mean, we have had these, we've been in these kind of situations before, right? I mean, we've, we've before Einstein or before Bohr or before Darwin we, we or before Newton, we had situations where nobody had a clue about certain major questions about concerning how the world works and then somebody figured it out or at least started us down the, the, the right way. But I don't see at the moment anything that brings us that way. My hopes are not, not frankly pinned on philosophy of mind or anything like that. They're really pinned on, on neuro, uh, neuro and developmental biology. Um, uh, but so I was going to ask you last to close out. I was going to have each of us talk about what we think where, where we think there are future prospects in this area. And so maybe since that's what you were talking about, maybe you could tell us wh- where do you think that, and this is a guess, where do you think the promising work is going to be? I, I am expecting progress uh, in neurobiology, especially once that neuroimaging techniques get better and better. You know, right now they're very rough. They're very, you know, very coarse. Uh, and despite what you see in newspapers and magazines, you don't, you know, neurobiologists are not really capable of looking at a single brain in real time. What they do is you know, these, these really nice images that you see of the brain lining up this way and that way. They're really statistical composite of, of you know, lots of different experiments. So, but I don't see any reason in principle why that cannot be improved and will in fact improve probably in the next few years because we're investing a significant amount of money uh, in that kind of technology. So once you get to a uh, a much finer sort of uh, real-time mapping and how the brain is is working, and perhaps a better understanding also of the developmental biology of the brain, because one of the things that we keep forgetting in this, most of these experiments are done on adults, but actually the most interesting things about the brain come out throughout development. You know, we we really need a lot more work done on the developmental biology of of the brain. So I'm thinking that uh, that line of research is going to give us a lot more information about just functionally how is it that the brain does the kinds of things it does. Now, whether that in and of itself is going to be sufficient to, you know, bridge the the gap that we're talking about between syntax and and semantics, I don't thinks necessarily that that's going to be the case. But it may hint at, at ways in which you can do it. I think that, that a lot of the philosophy of mind that is going on right now, a lot of the, 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 the speculation really that is going on right now um, is not particularly insightful simply because we just don't have enough facts on the ground to speculate reasonably about what's what's going on. We, we are in a very primitive stage from a point of view of sort of sheer basic biology so that, you know, we make up very, very high-level explanations or accounts of things, but we we just don't have enough of the details. Right. And so I'm hope, I'm I'm hoping that over the next uh, you know several years or decades, that's where we're going, and that's where where the the, the major uh, uh, positive advance is going to come. Yeah. Well, what I, do you? Th- I probably agree with you in a sense, but I mean, I actually don't. I have zero hope 
that the the neurobiology that you're talking about is going to help us in what traditionally are the questions in the philosophy of mind. Because the, the, the things that we're really interested in the philosophy of mind are overwhelmingly folk psychological in nature, it seems to me. In the yep. traditional philosophy, you know, what are propositional attitudes? What are sensations? Right. And when we're talking about the object of these questions, we're talking about these things as understood via the categories and concepts of folk psychology. Yeah, and, right. and I just... I, I think that, that there's a lot of basic category errors involved in a lot of these cross these attempts to cross explain, and so I think what's going to happen maybe is that the neurobiology will get so sophisticated that we'll come to understand that it's not the frame of reference from which to address a lot of the philosophy of mind questions. I suspect a lot of the philosophy of mind questions are really philosophy of language questions, and the traditional ones. I mean, the traditional yeah. philosophy of mind questions, um, and. In other words, I don't think any neurobiology is ever going to find something that tells us what the belief that P is, right? It's yeah, just yeah, not yeah. going to work like that. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm not even sure if it's going to tell us what beliefs are. Yeah. Um, um, part of the problem, I think, has to do with the fact that I think we misunderstand the folk concept. I actually am very dubious that there is such a thing as the mind, if you mean by the mind something like the brain, where it's a thing. We yeah. use the word mind 50 different ways. They yeah. all have a loose... Yeah, I could talk about losing my mind. I can talk about being absent-minded. Yeah. I could talk about being of a sound frame of mind. I could talk about being mindful, as you increasingly are in your life. And, all that. and there are loose connections between these things, but the notion that there is a thing that we're going to find that is the mind strikes me as oh, completely I, not... I, I agree. In fact, I, I tend... Not uh, going to happen. <laughs> use that word. Yeah, I try not to use that word in that sense at all. I, I think of the mind as a verb, as, as minding. That's good. Uh, you know, minding is what the brain does when it is exposed to certain environmental conditions and, and proper functioning uh, of, of the brain. So it's it's an activity. It's not a thing. Um, and But you're right. I think the that, that term, using the terminology as if the mind were a thing, uh, it really leads to very quickly to a lot of confusion because then people are going to look for this yeah. thing somewhere uh, and they're not going to find it. Yeah, and I even think that this extends to things like the free will, free will issue and stuff like that. I think that we're basically, in this sense, I would do a very heavy Wittgensteinian, a lot of Wittgensteinian work on the folk side yeah. And I would let the scientists do what they do, unmolested in a sense, and without this constant effort to yeah. sort of think so that you, we're going to explain what we do in terms of what they are doing, right? I mean, so I, you're looking at, so you're seeing, uh, if I understand you correctly, uh, at some point in the future, philosophy of mind essentially being subsumed into two different directions. On the one hand, we're going to have essentially philosophy of language. Uh, or something along those lines, and on the other hand, we're going to have the neurobiology of it. And, and uh, yeah, that, I, I like that idea. Actually, I think that's. That makes- I hope at some point we're going to stop looking for beliefs inside people's heads. I mean, yeah. that, that's really what I'm hoping. Which is, if you think about it, how much of philosophy of mind of the last since the '50s has been the attempt to find the things in the head that are the ingredients of folk psychological explanations, right? I mean, that's in a sense what we've been trying to do. And I think that that's a, a project based on basic category errors. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, and so I think the brain science is going is to take us in directions that may create an entirely new set of questions, right? Um, but I think that the, what we traditionally call the distinctive philosophy of mind questions are almost entirely um, really philosophy of language questions, and the extent to which we, we connect them to what's being done in the physical sciences of the brain, I think it involves category errors. 
Well, we do agree, I think, because I by now I, I I know I know you pretty well, I think, in terms of sort of your your philosophical uh, underpinning. But I think we agree, however, that this is no support for something like an eliminativist view of things, right? No. So you're not saying, in other words, like you know, the Churchlands, you know, Paul and Patricia Churchland have been saying for decades now that well, once the neurobiology gets good enough, no. you're going to do away with the folk categorical. Uh, no. You know, folk categories such as belief and, and sort of stuff. Right. No, I agree. I, agree. No, I, I think that folk psychological explanation is here to stay. I think it will never go away. It's at the heart of moral moral discourse. It's at the heart of social political discourse. Um, um, I think you know people like Skin, people like Churchlands, and before more sophisticated versions like B.F. Skinner. Um, just misunderstand the nature of these, the, the social embeddedness of these, of these uh, for, forms of life, as I would call them. I don't think they're ever going to go away. What I hope stops is this very crude and ham-fisted notion that we're going to find all the pieces of them inside in our physical sciences, that somehow there are, there's going to be, well, well, here's the belief that the bus is going to the mall, and here's the desire that goes to the mall, and, 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 and now, we know, now, now we know that the folk psychological explanation uh, maps onto this physical explanation. I don't think that's ever going to happen. I think that folk psychological explanations are essentially forms of interpretation, yeah. and um, they're inherently linguistic. They're never going to cease to be linguistic, and they're not going to be found in the brain like you go digging for treasure. I mean, it's just not like that. It's just no, I, I agree, and I, I think actually I think the only difference, I guess, slight difference probably is that I wouldn't use the word explanation as much as I would use the word sort of um, account or, or level of description or something. like I'm that. happy with that, yeah. And, and we yeah. know that that is the case in other uh, in other sciences. I mean, you know, for all these uh, quip that you always uh, hear from from some physicists about, oh, the table on which this computer is doesn't really exist because it's just a bunch of quirks. No, no, no. The table exists, my friend. I hit, hit you over the head with it. Right. <laughs> I can bang on it and I got a computer on it. I can tell you the table exists. Now, you're telling me that at a different level of description, that table is in fact made of what looks to me like a table is actually made of quirks. Fine. I got no problem with that. Right, right. Uh, but no, you're not going to be able to substitute Quark kind of level discourse uh, in terms, you know, instead of, of the, the le- uh, table level discourse, because otherwise we're simply not going to be able to talk about tables right. anymore. Right. And right. I think that, I mean, that idea of levels of descriptions and accounts um, is particularly useful and needs to be retained because even philosophers have these uh, physics envy, I suppose, or, or science envy more generally of sort of, oh no, let's reduce it all the way to the to, down to the bottom level. Well, no, it, it's not. It's just not useful. Or it's even, useful. or even the mistake of thinking that the accounts we give play the same role as explanations play in science. Right. They, they they play all sorts of roles. Um, part of those accounts play a, what you would describe as a roughly explanatory or predictive role. But I often think that they're. I think that we are engaged a lot more in the folk psychological level in interpretation than we are in explanation. I agree. I agree. And that, that's why actually, we're literally understanding each other is what yeah. we're doing. Right. Exactly. No, that's exactly right. That's why I, I'm beginning uh, to, to characterize philosophy as being in the business of understanding uh, or elucidating things, not of discovering things on the one on the one hand. And another way of putting it is that I don't think philosophers deal with theories, although we use the term theories and oh, I got theory of. Right. But no, I think we have an account of yeah. and an account is a way to present something in language in ordinary language 
or in somewhat technical language, so that to that to 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 increase our understanding of of that of that thing. It's not at all the same thing as a as a scientific theory. It's not at all the same as a scientific explanation of things. And I'm perfectly happy with that because I do think that even though there's a lot of back and forth between philosophy and science, uh, I I do think that there are distinct enough activities that it, it makes sense to say, well, no, th- th- this one is in the business of doing certain things. I mean, just like with science and mathematics, you know, mathematics. Uh, is not in the business of doing the same things that that science does, even though right, the right. two very much interact with each other. Yeah, you know? yeah, um, yeah. Um, so, yeah. Look, I think that what happened was it turned out that some of the things philosophy was doing turned out to be scientific questions after all. Um, yeah. But the mistake that people who are on your blog shall remain nameless sometimes <laughs> make is they think that there aren't any philosophical questions that, that aren't scientific questions or haven't turned into them. And I think that that's equally, equally wrong. I, 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 I would say philosophical uh, philosophy is pr- prim- fundamentally about uh, the logic and, and mechanics of interpretation, broadly understood. Yeah. Um, um, and that's why I always d- describe it as having a primarily critical function. Um, um, and uh, the sciences are about knowledge acquisition, right? And about about and about understanding in the sense that we can actually predict, right? Explain and predict. Right. I don't think philosophy does that at all, right? I mean, so so. All right. Well, we 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 wound up agreeing again. <laughs> uh, uh, it's all right. Well, yeah. I'll have to talk about religion sometime. Uh, <laughs> um, thank you so much. It was a pleasure as usual. And I look forward again, to sure. our next time. Yes. That's All right. right. Take care, Massimo. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.